from time to time. And uh, yeah, we were going to say a prayer for <coughs> Thomas and Lola and for God. You better bind that devil, boy. We're going to have fun today. <coughs> All right. We'll get her done here. I'm going to take a drink of coffee. Okay. We're going to take a look at how, how, then do, how sh- shall we live? Because to simply have knowledge about certain things is not really good enough. It's not complete in the Christian life. We need to know how to live things, how to live it out in our everyday life. So we're not just a walking encyclopedia of facts and information, but rather we are a living witness of what God wants us to become. We are not to be conformed to this world. We're to be transformed. And that's done by the renewing of our minds to determine what the will of God is. And we'll know it because it's good, it's perfect, and it's, and it's well-pleasing to Him. So we're going to change, we're going to start looking at a thing we call bear one another's burdens. <clears throat> How do we help other people? Why do we help other people? For what reason? I mean, is it all because we get some crowns and gold, silver, precious stones, and some of those things? I don't think so. What we do is we, when we develop the love that Christ has for us, we're able to love other people properly. And we're able to help other people properly. And we don't come across as just a judgmental know-it-all. What we come across is as a loving individual who wants to truly wants to see other people benefit. So how do we go about doing this? We talk with people and deal with people all over the world that are facing persecution unlike anything you can think or imagine. Uh, Anything I can think or imagine. I get reports and I get stories of it, but that's still just knowledge. It's not experience. And so their experiences are something else. I mentioned in the first session that there are various, uh, I didn't mention this particularly, anti-conversion laws that are going on in a lot of countries right now. If you convert to Christianity from one of their religions, you have to go in front of a judge. You have to go in front of a magistrate and prove that you weren't fooled into uh, changing religions. You have to be able to go in and prove they didn't coerce you, like offer you a chainsaw or something like that. So you'd stop going over to this temple and you'd start going to the church. You have to prove those things. And they don't want any Christians in their countries at all. Some Christians are locked up now in certain countries just because they're Christian. Pastors are locked up for preaching the word uh, in season and out of season. People are thrown in jail for singing praises to, to the Lord God Almighty. Blessed be the Lord God Almighty will get you thrown in jail in a lot of countries right now. Now is it coming here? Sometimes we say, oh, that'll never happen here. But it's moving that direction. We are like in the grips of a python that has been uh, instigated by Satan. It is a move to put in a world government, which is just a preview to the Antichrist. And we have been, uh, we're being crushed. Every time we take a breath, it tightens. Every time we give in a little bit, it tightens. And eventually what a python does is crushes its prey. It first gets a good bite. It gets a good hold, and then it wraps itself around it. And when you see things that are so totally anti-Christian, 
so totally anti-God, and they are taking over. That is like the python that has grabbed hold of us and does not want to let us go. It's real hard to kill a python. You know what you have to do? You have to cut the head off. You have to cut the head off. And we're not strong enough. We are not strong enough. It takes the Lord to do it. So we need to ask then, well, what do we do while the python is collapsing around us? And we're looking at this, actually using it in some other countries as a teaching tool to teach believers how to minister to one another and what all that means. You and I around here, we've been through the one another principles multiple times and gone blowing through them. I would say blowing through them. They're in two of the books back there, what they are and how they break out and how they divide. But they are principles of relationship. Each one of those has a much deeper understanding that you can go into. It's the way scripture is. You find in Galatians chapter 6, hopefully a passage that might... uh, uh, hopefully trigger some memories. And this passage is if a man is caught in a trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one a spirit of gentleness, each one looking to yourself that so that you don't be tempted. And then we find do this because it fulfills the law of Christ. Now how important is it if it's called the law of Christ that we minister to one another? So that's part of what we're going to go through. How do we as believers minister to one another and we're going to see the need for it as we start through this particular study but as we look at it let us approach it with not being a study but rather a time of of training so we'll know how to better minister to other people not so we'll know the information and lord it over them but so that we can have this information as a tool to use as the lord presents the opportunities I don't know if anyone in here over the last two weeks has had anybody ask them for help about a certain thing. Uh, As a pastor, I get it a lot, and that's what I do. I love to be able to help. But you need tools to be able to work with in order to help them properly and not not the modern psychology of the day, which is a disaster. This is all about being restored to fellowship with the Almighty, not accepting your sinful activity. That's what this is about. So let's take a, a moment for prayer. Let's prepare ourselves to do this and resolve we want to we learn this information and learn it well. So it's not something if we have an opportunity to apply, we have to go get our notebooks out. Let this be a part of who we are. Okay, let's pray. <clears throat> Father, again, we thank you for your blessings, for your tests, for your opportunities. Father, we thank you just for who you are. We thank you for this amazing plan of yours, that we are saved by grace through faith, but Father, you don't want us to to not do any works after that. You want us to do works because we have been saved by grace through faith. It's a part of our thank you. And so, Father, we want to indeed thank you for all your blessings. Thank you for all your tests. I pray as we go through this, we be better equipped to be able to help those who are in need that they may get their eyes back on the Lord Jesus Christ. We pray and ask all of this in Jesus' name, amen. Bearing one another's burdens comes out of Galatians 6, verses 1 to 5. A lot of information there, and we're going to go through that. But part of the introduction 
is in the last days, most people's love will grow cold. That's what we're told. We saw that in the Olivet Discourse. Matthew 24, verse 12. And because lawlessness is increased, most people's love will grow cold. Has anybody noticed an increase in lawlessness lately? I mean, when when you find uh, women, older women, going downstairs and some punk come up behind them and just knock them over and knock the fool out of them. What about people being shoved onto train tracks? I mean, this is, this is lawlessness. Most people's love will grow cold because part of what love does is it does for others. Love is, is what? Love is gracious, it's kind, it's patient. It, it does not bear a wrong suffered. We know what love is because the scripture has gone to great lengths to tell us what it is. But it's basically saying as things get worse... And remember, we're promised it's going to get worse. 2 Timothy 3.13. It's going to go from bad to worse. We're promised that, and as it gets worse, our tendency is to pull back and not be willing to help anybody. And yet, when do we need to help others the most? Right now. Right now. Because lawlessness is increased, most people's love will grow cold. This is the words of Jesus. If you have a red letter Bible, it's done in red. He didn't speak in red letters, but anyway, they've identified it as coming out of his mouth. So that's that's what will happen in the last days. People will not be wanting to do things for other people. Now, this can come from a me-first attitude. If you go to <clears throat> the passage, here's Revelation 3, but you can also go to 2 Timothy 3, which we've seen recently. In the last days, there will be perilous times... Men will be lovers of self, lovers of money. And you can see this going all the way through. We've recently been through James 5. James 5 in the last days, the rich of the last days, and the ultra-rich and super-rich. Can you imagine that, that that would have happened in such a visible, literal way as is going on right now? You have people buying up farmland so they can do away with meat, so they can better serve everybody else. Why? Because cows produce methane gas, which adds to the to this uh, fictional thing they call climate change. And so they can use it to control people. That's what it's about. Now, God didn't put meat off limits. Not off limits. We live in a time, read Acts chapter 10. Acts chapter 10, he told Peter, rise, kill and eat. And what was he looking at? All those unclean animals that the Lord brought him a vision of. He said, things have changed here. We're not under the Mosaic law. Eat what you want. Be wise about it. Maybe a, a, a diet full of uh, fatty steaks is not a good idea. Okay, That may be part of the problem. But anyway, be wise about it. But still, all foods are clean. The Lord said it in Mark 7. Is reiterated to Peter in Acts 10 because he didn't remember Mark 7. He was there whenever he told him all foods were declared clean. But anyway, this can come from a me-first attitude. It's an outgrowth of a lukewarm Christians in the last days. Revelation chapter 3, letters to the seven churches. Letter to the church at Laodicea. He says, I know your deeds. Nobody hides anything from the Lord. I know your deeds. What deeds? The church at Laodicea. What is it representative of? The last era of the church age. I know your deeds. You're neither cold or hot. 
I wish that you were cold or hot. <clears throat> so because your deeds are lukewarm, and they are neither hot or cold, I'll spit you out of my mouth. See, cold water is refreshing on a hot day. Hot water is good for bathing and cleaning and doing all kinds of stuff. The lukewarm water, he said, it's not too good. Now compare this, this picture to Christians. And cold Christians are those that are not involved because we're told to be fervent for the Lord, which is all about heating, getting heated up, getting excited, caring about him, carrying out his message. That's, that's the hot Christian. So the cold Christian just doesn't care. I wish you were hot. Then you'd be on fire for the Lord. That's the way I want you to be. But you're lazy. That's what he's saying to the bulk of the church in the last days. Why? Because you say, I'm rich. Become wealthy. I have need of nothing. We live in a society that this country we live in is of such a nature. We have been blessed more than any other nation in the history of the world. That's a fact. Nobody really argues with it. We've been blessed with this amazing amount of wealth. But what do we need? We can fix anything with money, can't we? We can fix anything with money. We can just throw money at it. And uh, he says, because you, he says, you've got all this stuff. And say, I have need of nothing. You don't know. But you're poor and miserable and blind and naked and wretched. You just don't realize it. Because without the Lord, if you think you don't need the Lord in your everyday life, you're, you're lukewarm. We are, we are in constant need of who he is. And that's an indictment on the church around the world. But especially here, we're the poster child. We're the poster child for the church at, at Laodicea. And it's a me first attitude. We put it with 2 Timothy 3 because in the last days men will be lovers of self, narcissists, lovers of money. We, we read those 20 things that are found in that list and we fit all those. Now in the last days people will become critical of one another. <clears throat> which contributes to the fact that spiritual love will almost disappear. Now, <clears throat> do we need to have critical thoughts? Absolutely. No argument with that. That's called discernment. Now, of course, what we've got is discernment. What everybody else has got is judging. That's normally the way that we, we look at things. That's the lens through which we do. But the, if, if, you, if you have a judgment because we're told to judge not lest you be judged we're also told why don't you judge things don't you know you're going to be judging angels in heaven 1 Corinthians chapter 6 talks about such things don't you know that, that this is going to happen so there's this balance point of judgment and it's called wisdom and this wisdom grants us a discernment so it doesn't say don't judge anything because if you don't you fall for anything but it also is saying that People become critical of one another, and usually that is talking about some legalistic evaluation of standards. To <clears throat> some people, if you eat meat, you get judged. Other people, if you don't eat meat, you get judged. There's all kinds of ways to do that, and it's basically saying, 
uh, in James 5, again, a context of the last days. Be patient, therefore, till the coming of the Lord. Behold, the farmer waits for the precious produce of the soil, being patient about it until it gets the early and late rains. You too be patient. Strengthen your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Do not complain, brethren, against one another. It's basically saying we can spend so much time complaining about one another, we don't do the stuff that's important. Which is serve one another, bear one another's burdens, love one another, encourage one another. If ever the gifts needed to come out and show themselves it's now, like the gift of encouragement, the gift of mercy needs to be there. But see, whenever lawlessness is increased, the gift of mercy grows cold, doesn't it? We pull back. We pull back. It's a common human thing to do, but it's not as a scriptural, spiritual, biblical thing to do. That's not what we're supposed to do. He says, don't complain, brethren, against one another that you yourselves may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing right at the door. So if there's a complaint, is it biblically based? That'd be the question I'd ask. We're going to test it. Is it biblically based? Is there immorality in the land? Should I be critical of that? Yeah, why? Because the Bible is. And I can show you the verses where it is. Is uh, hedonism in the land? Yes. Thank you, playboy, for all that. Uh, Can I... Is that, is that a righteous judgment? Yes, it is. But what kind of car somebody drives is not. In one of these days, you can see it coming because they started with the SUVs. They got critical of SUVs, and now you've got certain people want to save the planet, and they're letting air out of tires on SUVs. Okay, Ours is sold. I guess they don't care. Okay, But it had, thankfully, we haven't lost all the air in the tires, and so what? We'll just air them back up. But see, that type of thing, that critical thing is what breaks down societies. That's the thing that what happens is people are going to push back. You know, half the people in the country surveyed if said they think there's going to be a civil war in this country within the next couple of decades. And it's all headed that way. It's just as divisive now as it was in the 1850s before the Civil War started in 1861. It's just as divisive in thoughts and everything else. We have different disciplines called critical this and critical that. We also have in the church what's called higher critical theory, which some great minds in Germany in the 1800s decided that Moses didn't really write the first five books of the Bible. That it was done by... Um, uh, it wasn't done by Moses at all, long about 950. The Yahwehs, the Jehovahs, the ones that you like the word Jehovah, they wrote part of the Bible. And then about 850, that was 950 B.C., 500 years after Moses. And then in 850, the Eloist came along. And those that liked the term Elohim, that was the ones that came in and added all the verses that had Elohim in them. And then after that, the Deuteronomists came in. This was the law group. They connected that 
in a scholarly way to the finding by Hezekiah of the law again in the temple, reading it and reinstalling it, the Deuteronomist 621 B.C. And so that's when the law codes were written. Was that just, It's moved the law of Moses a thousand years is what it's done. Now what about the priestly code? That's P, the last one, added in by Ezra Nehemiah in 450 B.C. They call it the JEDP theory, higher critical theory, and you know even Jews buy into it. Because I've talked to them. They think that that's correct, and it's true, and it's accurate, and they teach it in a lot of seminaries. And we wonder why churches are going astray, because they don't believe the Bible's a Bible. It's where it starts. And so <clears throat> they're going to be critical of everybody and everything, but they're critical based on the wrong standards, and that's where the problem is found. Now, as the world goes from bad to worse in the last days, sin will become not just rampant, but acceptable. Acceptable. Second Timothy 3 says, And indeed all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus, Christ Jesus will be persecuted. That context is last days. That context is last days. Do you desire to live godly in Christ? There's going to be a time I've got one of those in God we trust tags on the back of my vehicle. And you can almost, there's going to be a time it, those cars are going to be keyed, tires are going to be slashed. That's the direction we're headed. It's going to happen here. People say it won't happen here, and then it happens. That's what it does. But it's kind of a so what? Am I going to stop wearing Christian t-shirts out in public? Because I'm hiding. It says, you're going to be persecuted. Didn't he tell the disciples, the Lord in the upper room in this world, you have trouble. You're ready for it. They're going to hate you because they've hated me. It's all a choice against God. Just prepare for it. It says, evil men and impostors will proceed from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. So what we viewed growing up, and <clears throat> what we viewed growing up as sin, right now is acceptable in so many different areas. You know, almost the only sins you can talk about, the only thing they'll actually call a sin is when it involves money. If it involves money... We better lock them up. We better put them away. We better, you know, if it involves money, we're going to exact justice. Are we not? That's the thought of society. But if it involves clearly stated moral issues that are clearly stated by the Word of God, it's almost like the opposite is what is acceptable. Because that's a religious viewpoint, and we can't have religion. So <clears throat> all these acceptable sins... Selfishness, adultery, anger, judgmentalism, being offended. There are a ton of sins. Gluttony, laziness. Uh, the current sermon series, I guess that's an acceptable sin. I didn't notice I had one on there. <laughs> Hopefully, you won't find this amongst those. This indicates that the freedom we've received in Christ will be used as an opportunity for the flesh rather than an opportunity to serve others. We talk a lot about freedom in this country, and rightly we should, because there's a whole lot of people died to set us free from England back in the Revolutionary War, 
A lot of people died so that the slaves might be freed in the Civil War. A lot of people have died in this country for the cause of freedom. And <clears throat> but how do we use it? We see that freedom as a, as a picture of our spiritual freedom. You find out that you're free. You can sin and God has forgiven you of it already. And you can find that people find out that they can sin and the next thing you know they run off into a life of sin. It's not a freedom that's to be used for anarchy. Galatians 6, 5, 1 says it was for freedom that Christ set us free. Keep standing firm and do not be subject again to a yoke of slavery. Now the freedom that he set us free from was the freedom from legalism in the context of the book of Galatians. Book of James, as I mentioned sometime along the way, <clears throat> Acts is coming out. Take that and try to make it a, a backdrop. James will be the next book that we put up on the website, a verse-by-verse verse, um, summary of that book. And the next one will be Galatians. So if you follow these in a chronological order of when they were written, hopefully that they will help you gain a better context and a contextual flow of the whole New Testament. Because there's a context to the whole New Testament. Why? Because it's all inspired of God. He used different authors. And if it wasn't inspired of God, you'd expect there to be a lot of differences. Inspired of God, you find out there's no internal inconsistencies. There's problems on our thinking. There are no flaws in it. It is all done perfectly to the letter. So we need to approach it with this, uh, with this type of approach. And as you do this, you'll be able to study systematically and see how Scripture interprets itself. Now, <clears throat> Galatians 5, verse 13. He says, you were called to freedom. He reaffirms what he said in verse 1. It was for freedom Christ said it's us free. Do not turn your freedom into an opportunity for the flesh. But through love serve one another. You've got your salvation. You've got your eternity confirmed. You've got it guaranteed. You're in the hand of God. There's no power in heaven on earth or under the earth. can take you out of that. Now that is, a, is something that we can rely on. But it is not a license to sin. I think David, who pushed it to the limit, maybe his son Solomon, would testify to that fact if they were here today. Okay, because they pushed it to the limit. And what, what is I think Kelvin read last last week Ecclesiastes 12, and you read the book of Ecclesiastes, and it's just a book of human viewpoint. It's full of human viewpoint, and all is vanity and striving after wind. The words of the preacher is what it says, and he keeps talking about I tried this and I tried this, and I applied my mind with wine, trying to figure out something else to do that was new, and I couldn't find that. There is nothing new under the sun. Well, when it all boils down to it in chapter 12, love God and serve Him. That was his conclusion. After all the human viewpoint that he explored with literally all the wealth in the world and he said if you don't have God the rest does not matter so <clears throat> don't use the freedom to serve through love serve one another for the whole law is fulfilled in one word in the statement you shall love your neighbor as yourself the royal law James 2.8 but if you bite and devour one another 
take care lest you be consumed by one another. Sounds real close to the James 5 passage where everybody is critical of everybody for everything that they, that they do. You know, about the only thing we can control is what we think, say, and do. Not what anybody else does. I know a lot of people over the course of time, myself included, there's, there's people I wish I could fix. And people I know you wish you could fix. I can't fix anybody. And we know that intellectually, but experientially takes some hard knocks, doesn't it? There's some people we just can't fix. But, is anything impossible with God? Have they escaped his notice? They know exactly what's going on in those thick heads, <laughs> including ours, all the time. They know it. So, <clears throat> this freedom, <clears throat> don't use it as an opportunity to be self-serving. That's what feeds narcissism. Use it as an opportunity to serve others. <clears throat> Principles that were taught early in the church age will be neglected and almost forgotten. <clears throat> Principles that were taught early in the church age will be neglected and almost forgotten. You know, they're saying right now that the Constitution of the, out of the United States is old, it's out of date, and should be disregarded and thrown away. Because what does that do to the whole concept of vows, especially those who swore to uphold and defend the Constitution of the United States against all enemies, foreign and domestic? What does that do? That throws the importance of vows out. And what is it about a vow? Keeping your word. Jesus said, let your yes be yes and your no be no. It's that simple. Doesn't have to be anything formal. If it is, pay careful attention to it. But let your yes be yes. When you say something like that, then don't use that as an opportunity to get in and turn it around. <clears throat> Galatians chapter 6. Galatians chapter 6 is where we move to next. And verse 1. So if you're not not there, this is a, we're going to spend a little bit of time on these five verses in Galatians chapter 6. Now it doesn't mean that, that verse 6 and following is not important. Well, you can go ahead and read those anytime you want to. The rest of them are important in Galatians 6 because it's all important that's found in there. But it says, brethren... Now, people argue whether or not Galatians is written to believers or not. Or is it only written to Jews? It's written about 48 A.D., 15 years into the church age. Brethren here can indicate it's coming from Paul. But Paul uses brethren both for his fellow Jews and for believers. So, it's, it, you can't say it's one to the exclusion of the other. That would be a mistake. It says brethren. And you can prove that brethren is used, he uses that term for Gentiles. So if he uses the term for Gentiles, then fine. Brethren, even if a man, an anthropos, now I guess ladies are never caught in a trespass, so it depends on what pronoun you're using today. But 
because it has been traditional for a long time to use the masculine to describe groups of people. That's what happens. However, it's interesting that the feminine is used to describe cities. The word for city is, is usually a feminine noun that, that is taken. So there are people, there are initiators, there are responders. It says here, here's a man. This is an example. If a man is caught, it's a third class condition, okay? which means maybe it'll happen, maybe it won't. It's not saying if it happens and it always will, but he's saying maybe it will, maybe it won't, which is the aorist passive subjunctive of prolambano. When you see this aeon word that is used here, and I know me pointing there does you no good whatsoever, but... <clears throat> Prolambano means to receive beforehand. It's the root meaning of the word. And it says, basically, if a fault is found in this person before one's found in you. It's a third-class condition. Okay, if anyone is caught in any trespass. Now, the preposition in is a, a sphere, indicating within the sphere of tis, this little word is a... Uh, indefinite pronoun in any of any kind and then paraptoma usually is a word that denotes conscious sin he knew what he was doing and he knew it was wrong kind of like the red skeleton's mean little kid if I dude it I get a whipping I dude it well here's a guy that dude it and he got caught he says caught in any trespass then he says you who are spiritual the word spiritual is pneumatikos. It's not used very often. Pneuma is the word for spirit. You put ikos on the end of it, and it means of or pertaining to something. That's how the words are formed in Greek. You who are spiritual, you're walking by the Spirit, living by the Spirit, seeking the guide, guidance of the Spirit. And then here is a present active imperative of the word katartizo. Now this, I love, I love this word. Because this is a word that means to mend fishing nets. It's used early on as derivatives. It's used of Peter and John mending their nets. And this is the word means to put them back together. I saw fishing nets. Most of us don't get to see big fishing nets. We think of a fishing net and it's the kind that will pick up a five pound fish. And that's about the only kind of fishing net we know of. But in the south end of India... Uh, one time and I saw these guys swimming out into the ocean in line and I thought what are they doing from the shore they're swimming out in, in line and they're carrying the net they're carrying this net out there just as far as this net will go and then when they reach a certain point they all yell and they drop the nets and then they spend the next two hours dragging the nets in Hopefully it's not 10 minutes of dragging it in. Now hopefully they got enough fish in there because that's where the fish market is. But that's the way they really fish. And the fish, this thing is probably 150 feet by 150 feet. And it's a big one. Now they make mesh within these nets because they don't want all the little bitty ones. So they make a big enough, big enough mesh on a net, 3 inch, 4 inch, 5 inch, so the little ones get out. They don't catch them. They catch the bigger ones of the size size that they want. Now, occasionally, something gets in and chews a hole in the net. 
or they get something too big and the net gets old and it pops. So when it talks about mending their nets, it's talking about it is talking about here um, uh, restoration of a net to its useful condition, and they are reweaving and putting these things together so the next time that they go out, they'll be able to catch fish as they they want to. So when it's talking about restore such a one, this person caught in this trespass, you're going to help fix the nets. You're going to help fix them so they can be fishers of men. See the intention behind all this? Restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness. Proutes is the word. It is the number eight in the list of the fruit of the spirit found in the previous chapter just listed in in the book of Galatians. Now, when you study Proutus, oftentimes they translate it as meekness. And it's really anything but this is a word that looks at power under control. That's what gentleness really is. Gentleness is power under control. You have to stop and think about it a second. It's just like if you're going to tend to your flowers or your vegetable garden. You need, you need the power to do it, but you've got to have it under control. Or you kill it in the process. That's not what you want to do. Whenever its instructions are given... <coughs> To pastors, Second Timothy 2:26, those it's basically the same thing. Restore such a one in a spirit, correcting those with a spirit of gentleness. That's how it how it needs to start. <coughs> and then look at this next phrase. Each one looking to yourself. Now, scopeo is a word that means to look at all the details. Look at we get microscope from it, we get telescope from it. We get from this word is what it's looking at is looking at the details. And it's neat when you get a, a good uh, telescope of some kind uh, to be able to focus in. I just got one not long ago that was that was really cool, and now I can focus on a uh, a bird on a hummingbird across if they'll sit still long enough that's 100, 150 yards away and it's just like you're right there with, with, the, with the bird. He says, look at yourself first. So if you're going to help somebody, look at yourself first, lest you too be tempted. Here's past this subjunctive, peirazzo. This is a word that means tempt or test depending on the context. But don't succumb to the temptation that to follow in their footsteps. Don't succumb to the temptations to not offer correction, biblical correction, as needed. See, this is this is a very important verse. I was talking with someone who had been studying doctrine for a long time. This goes back several years. And mentioned bearing one another's burdens. And they had no, they had never heard of this verse. Because they had spent so much time, they had spent so much time <clears throat> straining out a gnat, they swallowed a camel. They hadn't been reading the Bible enough on their own to even remember it. Now, <clears throat> this is such an important verse for restoration. Now, in view, as a person who has taken a false step, they made a blunder, they fell down. 
Okay? And it happens to people from time to time. They have, they have made a false step. As what is, what's a sin to miss the mark? You know, if you're shooting at the ten ring on a target and you hit the nine ring, you miss the mark. That's the way it is. You're missing the target. And that's what happens in our life. We're trying to walk a straight and narrow line that is honoring to our Lord, and then we trip and fall. And sometimes those can be dangerous. <clears throat> so I had cataract surgery. When I walk out into the sunlight, it is really bright out there. I have to be careful. I was walking out to my office here three or four weeks ago, and I uh, have a sidewalk going out to the office, and off the sidewalk, there's a massive drop-off of about two inches. <clears throat> and I got blinded by the sun. I couldn't see. I stepped off the edge and fell, nose down. Automatically, my hands go just like this, which left a big, long scrape on the elbow, one on the knee, and they're all still they're healing up. But that was a blunder. That was a misstep. I missed the mark of the sidewalk just by a little bit. <laughs> you know, you've been there. You get your foot a little bit off and a little bit on. And next thing we know, the older we get, we lose our balance and off we go. And uh, uh, some of my family members thought it was hilarious that uh, I, <laughs> I'm kidding. They were very comforting in the process. But that's what this is talking about. Now, this is talking about sin. Somebody that gets involved in sin, caught in the sin, and it's pretty obvious that they're caught in the sin, what do you go about doing? We're to clearly forgive those who have transgressed. No doubt about it. Forgive. That means we're not going to let them run our lives. Because sins can get in your head of other people. We can't let them run our lives for us. Mark 6. If you forgive men for their transgressions, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. If you don't forgive men, your Father will not forgive your transgressions. Now, he's talking to a lot of Pharisees there, and they didn't think they had any transgressions, so they didn't think it applied to them at all. But he's, he's saying, your transgressions, he's telling the Pharisees they've got them too. Mark 11:25, And whenever you stand praying, forgive if you have anything against anyone. So that your Father also is in heaven may forgive our transgressions. We need to remember that we are all just big goof-ups, one false step away from tripping and falling. So we're to forgive those who have transgressed. So that these are passages built on the words of Jesus Christ, and we're going to apply them and connect them into, into Galatians 6. We're called to forgive them. Because Christ paid their debt for sin, just like he did ours. Okay, Their debt for sin has been, has been done already. Romans 4.25, he was delivered up because of our transgressions. And he was raised because of our justification. So he could declare us righteous. So one day we could stand in front of a holy God. Now that's a gift. That is a gift of justification. And we forget about it at times. So we have to remember that other people, we still sin and other people do too. But this is something of such a nature that people just just uh, blow it. Now, what types of things would this include? First sins that come to mind are sins of morality. 
What about sins of dishonor? What about sins of the tongue? What about sins of the mental attitude? Because arrogance is in the last days, right? Men will be lovers of self. Should we ever call that on the carpet? I remember a conversation with a pastor. I was doing a conference in uh, Southeast Asia. We'll leave it there. And we had a man that was a teacher. um, Taught at seminaries. Thought he knew everything there was to know about the Bible. And he took exception with some of the things that, that I was saying. And we tried to discuss them, and he just kept interrupting and basically told the other uh, pastors that were there, you guys just shut up and listen to me. It's what he, listened to him, is what he was talking about. And I talked to the guys I was with, and I said, we're going to have to do this. We're going to have to stop it somehow. And how are we going to do that? Because he was taking issue with the fact, how could a pastor who has committed a sin of immorality, how could he possibly be saved? That is his question. Okay, How could he possibly be saved? And he was taking issue with that, or how could he keep his salvation if he did that? Did he disqualify himself from the office? Obviously he did. What verse? 1 Timothy 3. Not 2 Timothy. So the, the verses are there to support what you're saying. And he kept on, and I told the guys at dinner the night before, I said, pray for wisdom because we're going to have to shut it down somewhere, somehow, and we need to do it as gently as possible. And he started again the next day. There's only about 20 of them in the room. And I basically went right over to him. And I said, I want you to answer me a question. What about a pastor who's never dealt with a sin of arrogance in his life? Who? You could have heard a pin drop, for sure. And it was, he got it. He figured it out. I said, arrogance is every bit as bad as what you're talking about. And arrogance, in a lot of ways, can be a lot more damaging. And I said, what about that sin? Does that count? Has he lost his salvation every time his arrogance manifested itself? And he thought a while, and he finally, he said when it was done, he went and told the guy that was, that was conducting it, he said, I'm glad that he called me on it because everybody in the state I live in comes to me for answers. And I've got questions I don't have answers to. And he said, I need somebody that I can bounce them off of. And he said, I really appreciate that. So even though we were combative over the course of most of the conference, he said, I appreciate that. So how do we do things? We have to say, you know, if, if, if you're so full of yourself that you can't listen, there's a problem. And it's a problem of sin. And so here is this, this person caught in an obvious misstep that is there, and how do you go about doing it? Now, transgressions can deeply affect many people. Romans chapter 5 and verse 15. The free gift is not like the transgression, for if by the transgression of the one, Adam, in context, 
the many died. <laughs> we have a sin that was passed on from Adam to every member of the human race except Jesus. That's why the need to be born of a virgin was passed down through Adam. The many died. How much more did the grace of God and the gift of the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, abound to the many? Transgression can deeply affect a lot of people. It can hurt them, it can harm them, it can damage their spiritual life, and do all kinds of things. Should it damage another person's spiritual life? No, it shouldn't. Does it from time to time? It does. So what should we do as Christians who want to love others as we love ourselves? We don't want to put a stumbling block in front of a brother. I'm not, I'm not saying to you anything you don't know, just a reminder Paul addressed all these situa situations. 1 Corinthians 9, don't put a stumbling block in front of a brother. If you go over to eat dinner with somebody and they offer you meat offered to idols, eat it. That's what he told them. Because that's unimportant. Because an idol is nothing. Think about it. <laughs> what is an idol? It doesn't hear, see, smell, or do anything else. It's nothing. So if they offer, it's actually a nothing transaction. So think about it. Don't make a big deal. And especially he warned about food. Don't make a big deal over food about whom Christ died for. Where there is a transgression, there's grace. Further in Romans 5, picking up in verse 16. And the gift is not like that which came through the one who sinned. This is, see we had 5.15, now we get 5.16. For on the one hand, the judgment arose from one transgression, resulting in condemnation. On the other hand, the free gift arose from many transgressions, resulting in justification. Because what did Christ take upon himself? All this. So that what could happen to us? we be declared righteous. For if by the transgression of the one, Adam, death reigned through the one, Adam, much more those who receive the abundance of grace and the gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one, Jesus Christ. So then as through one transgression there resulted condemnation to all men. That's the sin of Adam. Even so, through one act of righteousness, Christ's death on the cross, there resulted justification of life to all men. This is another passage that says the atonement of Christ on the cross was unlimited. Not limited. Unlimited. For as through the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, that's you and I, even so through the obedience of the one the many will be made righteous. And the law came in that transgression might increase, but where sin increased, Grace abounded all the more. That as sin reigned in death, even so grace might reign through righteousness to eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. He's going to go on the rest of that chapter and he's going to say, just because, don't misread this, just because wherever there's sin, there's grace. <laughs> don't sin so there'll be more grace. <laughs> okay, Because there are those that push grace and they find out grace will run out if you keep pushing it. The reconciliation of the world to God through Christ was so that our transgressions might not have an eternal cost. 
2 Corinthians 5.19 Namely that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. Not counting their trespasses against them. See in the Old Testament it was called atonement. It was covered. It was like there's a gigantic pile of sin that was covered by a tarp. They were covered. Not held against them. Prior to him coming to the cross. Now what does it say about sin? Taken away. Not that it doesn't exist, but it's no longer an issue in your eternal life. No longer. He has committed to us the word of reconciliation. All right, with these passages in this Galatians 6, and a brother caught in a trespass, and you're going to restore such a one, what are you going to show? Reconciliation means to make peace. You are acting like an enemy of Christ. That's what's happened to some, sometimes to believers who go astray. They're acting like they're an enemy of Christ. Philippians has also got a passage about that. The word of reconciliation, the word of peace. Colossians 1.20 is another passage that, that you look at and it says that, that he has reconciled all things to himself, whether things in heaven, things on earth, or under the earth. Now that is an amazing statement. That is, means that he is, through the death of Christ on the cross, peace, the opportunity for peace has been fully established with our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, <clears throat> it's no longer an eternal cost for sin. It can cost you rewards, but it can't cost you heaven. Now, that should be comforting because as we look in the mirror of the Word of God, we constantly find out we are sinners saved by grace through faith. And we, why do I do, Paul writes, what I don't want to do? It's the sin inside of me, the sin nature. Paul, the great apostle, talks about his battle with the power of sin. It's sad. I still see pastors talking about, well, was, was, was he talking about his life as an unbeliever? And this is a flashback. Well, read the rest of the book. <laughs> no, he's talking about his battle as a believer, fighting sin. He does not want to give in to it. He wants to fight it all the way. And that's part of what made Paul so great, just like what made David so great. A man after God's own heart. And look at the list of those big sins that add to David's life right there. Wow. This gets us started. Bearing one another's burdens. Being available is one of the biggest things. Don't run and hide when someone is caught in a trespass. Be available. And that may be all you, you need to say. I'm here to help. I'm here to talk. I'm here to visit. There are all kinds of openings and introductions. If you want to talk about something, call me. Now to do that, you need to, to establish footnote, you need to be a trustworthy person. And if you're the kind of person that hears something and it goes up on the internet, you're not the people that people want to talk to. When people are hurting this bad, they need to know that your conversations will stay between you two. And if you go outside of that ring, you need to say, I would like to talk to so-and-so about this. Ask for permission to do it. That's how we function in, in honor. 
to, to do things. May I talk to, if they say no, then you talk more to the Lord is the way that that is dealt with because he's the one has got all the answers anyway. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this day, your love and grace and mercy for all your goodness. Father, we thank you for what you have called us to do. We thank you for the importance of the mission and ministry that you've assigned to each and every one of us. We pray that we will be more attuned to it, more uh, understanding of it, and more embracing of it. Father, let us not uh, uh, push it aside and try to make our uh, comfort more important than carrying out your mission. So, Father, we pray you'll be with us. Encourage us along the way, and we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.